With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of Dishes and Dimes. My name is Iman, and as you guys can already tell from the title, we have Tim Donahue on today's episode. Now I want to start by saying this was recorded weeks ago, so this was actually recorded prior to the NBA playoffs. You'll hear some Suns and Bucks talk. <laughs> Ignore that. Um, also, I was sick when this is recorded, so my audio is really bad. I do apologize for that as well. So for those of you guys who do not know, Tim Donahue is a former NBA referee who officiated in the league from 1994 to 2007. He became embroiled in a scandal in 2007 when it was revealed that he had been betting on NBA games, including some that he was officiating. Donahue pled guilty to federal charges of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and received a 15-month prison sentence. The notion that a referee, someone responsible for upholding the rules and maintaining a level playing field, could potentially compromise the integrity of the game sent shockwaves through the NBA and its fan base. And then came the bigger story, one that hasn't fully been uncovered and told, and may never be. One that every die-hard NBA fan knows, and maybe even believes. It's Game 6 of the 2002 Western Conference Finals. Or the 2006 NBA Finals. It's Scott Foster being nicknamed the Extender, a role that he took from Dick Bavetta. It's a story about the integrity of the league as a whole. Tim Donahue is the face of the NBA betting scandal, but this is a story that is larger than a single referee. And that's a story that Donahue wants to share. Tim has been a vocal critic of the NBA's officiating policies. He asserts that the league itself is biased towards certain teams and players, and that he never fixed a game, but that those biases gave him inside knowledge that gave him success betting. At the top of the podcast, I have to tell you that despite his claims, and the claims of the NBA that there's no evidence of Donahue betting on games, many allegedly still believe that he did. Our interview with Tim Donahue runs over an hour, and we recognize that questioning Tim Donahue's assertions is both necessary and prudent. His involvement in the scandal raises doubts about his credibility, and rightfully so. We want to be clear, this is not an endorsement of Donahue's claims. Rather, it's an exploration of the piece of the story, a journey to unravel the complex tapestry of truth. By discussing this in full, we aim to gain a more comprehensive understanding of the NBA, its systems, and the delicate balance between competition and integrity. This will not be a standalone episode. We plan on releasing parts as part of a broader series digging deeper into the NBA's biggest stories off the court. In the coming weeks, we'll release the final episode of the Tim Donahue series interviewing Tim Livingston from the hit podcast series Whistleblower. If you have not checked it out, and I am breaking my little NPR tone that I was trying out, I do recommend that you do. It's one of the most captivating podcast series I've listened to. I binged right through it in a weekend, and I'm talking like in a weekend. That's faster than I get through Love Island, so you know it is good. 
So stay tuned for our episode. I do want to say we get into some fun stuff too, because when else are we going to have a referee on? And lastly, because it's ever so topical, we will get to pick his brains on his thoughts on the NBA's embrace on gambling in 2023 and the steps the NBA has taken to prevent a future similar scandal. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Dishes and Dimes brought to you by Basketball News. My name is Iman, and I'm joined by my lovely host, Sandra, but also a very special guest. We have someone who has been a part of this NBA league and has really shaped a lot of the ways that we talk about officiating. That is Tim Donahue. Tim Donahue, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, Sandy, do we have Solana making an appearance today as well? Yeah, I do apologize. My baby's I was like, oh my God, what was that? You're giving some sound effects in the background. Um, Hopefully she does not cry. I try to like get her, sedate her with uh, milk. So hopefully she doesn't wake up. But if she does, I do apologize. She might make a little bit of an appearance That's fine. We've got two special guests today. All right. So, uh, Tim, I want to sort of, I I reached out to you er, a a few weeks ago. The reason I reached out to you was because the topic of officiating seemed to be at the top of everyone's mind. You had the Fred Van Vliet comments, Sandy, that we've discussed here, being in Toronto, of course. Um, We also had, you know, Monty Williams comments after the Lakers game, the Lakers free throw discrepancy. All of those conversations have kind of been front and center, the Mavs requesting a review for a game. I mean, it's all over the NBA right now. And I thought, I want to have a conversation about officiating. And I don't expect us to do that all today. I don't think it can be done in one episode, but I think that there are different parts of it. And we certainly can't begin it without talking to you first and talking about your story. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I'd like to start right at the beginning. As I mentioned, I read your book, Personal Foul, uh, for anyone who has not has not gotten it you can sort of I'll let you plug it as well but i want to start off with your story for those people who who might not be familiar with you yeah basically i was a referee uh in the nba for 13 years and in the course of officiating in the nba i kind of got uh you know involved in gambling and i joined a country club uh in westchester pennsylvania and uh met a couple guys there and we enjoyed gambling, uh, whether it was on the golf course or playing cards in the locker room or even jumping in the car and going down to Atlantic City, which was about an hour and a 15 minute drive. So um, really, I just got consumed with gambling uh, to the point where I wanted to do it all the time. And with that, I was betting on the NFL, college football, Major League Baseball, really anything I could get my hands on. And, you know, I had a friend of mine one day uh, asked me who I thought was going to win the games in the NBA that night and had the Philadelphia Daily News. And I had just come from home, so I knew who was officiating the games. And I rattled off three games to him. And he called me up the next day all excited because all three won. And I based those picks on who was officiating and the relationships that existed between the referees and the players or the referees and the coaches or the referees, even the owners, as you and I discussed briefly before we started. So, um, you know, I just continued to uh, gamble with him on um, everything other than the NBA. And then I got up to the point where I started gambling on NBA games when I knew, uh, you know, somebody was going to do something out on the floor that night. 
and either help or hurt a player. Uh, and so I started passing that information to him and he was betting and we were winning. And um, what I didn't know was that people that were associated with organized crime that he was putting the bets through were also following those bets, knowing that I was his friend and knowing that he was all of a sudden winning at an enormous clip. So when we stopped, uh, I was in Philadelphia one night to referee the Sixers game and a high school friend of mine called me up and said that this guy, um, you know, wanted to meet me for dinner. And, you know, he came down to the hotel and he had this guy, Jamie Batista, which was associated who associated with organized crime and who I knew from high school and had said that he was getting the picks for the last, um, you know, several years and that he wanted to continue to get those picks. And when I tried to weasel my way out of it and lie and say, I didn't know what he was talking about. You know, he basically threatened to expose me to the NBA for gambling on NBA games in the past or worse yet, having somebody visit my wife or kids in Florida. So with that, I was hoping to just give him picks for the next three months, the remainder of the season, and then be done with it. Um, but by the end of the, the season, it was exposed over a Gambino wiretap and the FBI was involved. And I guess, like they say, the rest is history. Right. And so, so we're talking about the, the 06, 07 season. Now, uh, can I ask, when did you begin betting specifically on NBA games and in your own games as well? Like what, what year roughly would that have been around? You know, I, I don't, it was so long ago. Um, it was probably uh, three years prior to uh, getting involved with Batista, which was, I think, in 2006, 2007. So three years prior to that, uh, I know a buddy of mine, uh, we had been doing it for about three years before that. Danny, you and I were talking about this. We were like, how does the NBA not catch on? Like, I think that that's sort of the question where if, if and you were a top referee, right? You it, it, you were a well-regarded and, and a highly graded referee. How does the NBA not catch on to something like that happening for, for years under, under them? You know, I just think that, um, you know, it's something where, they had an agenda at times where certain players were to be put on a pedestal, certain teams were to be put up on a pedestal. And, um, you know, referees did certain things based on relationships, either good or bad. And it was just something that they let go. There was uh, calls that were just so subjective at times that, uh, you know, a lot of the referees did things and were able to get away with it for a lot of years. So I just really had the inside knowledge of that and of course being um in the locker room or you know with the guys at lunch that day knowing that um certain things were going to take place out on the court that night whether it was because the league was cracking down on a certain rule then that was going to affect a certain player or you know a relationship that was either positive or negative that was going to really affect the game that night and in my mind would affect the the line by four or five sometimes even six points so I knew whether to go, you know, with the team or against it. So that's interesting because I, I wonder, I'm sure the NBA was aware that this was happening, maybe not the scale, but um, I'm sure um, with the amount of money they were making off of these games that they might have been aware that 
you know, there there were some things happening, but I'm curious. That's, that's a, I'm gonna say huge I, allegation. Okay, <laughs> yeah, no, okay, maybe that's allegedly. not fair to say. Maybe that's not fair to say. Okay, maybe they weren't. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they weren't. I just it just seems to me that maybe I, they I think I think it's a good question of like how does something like this I, and to your point, are referees also put up on a pedestal like that? Are there certain referees who also maybe the NBA looks the other way if there's some calls and it's like eh, this new guy. You're going to be right, on time right. now. No, but... great, great question because um, Joe Crawford uh, was a guy that was suspended several times, you know, threw Tim Duncan out because he laughed at him. And he was allowed it. to do certain things, um, you know, out on the floor. And, and everyone would think, you know, he had pictures of David Stern with farm animals because he kept being allowed to come back and officiate in the NBA when most people would have been fired on the spot and never saw the court again. But he kept being allowed to come back and he was always one of their top guys. So uh, yeah, certain referees were allowed to, you know, do certain things. And, you know, I think now they probably shied away from that to a certain extent, but I still see certain guys that are out there pretty much doing, uh, you know, what they want to do. Right. Um, and so I'm I, okay. So you wrote this in your book and it stands out to me because it's my birthday. Um, so you say that March 18th was the last day that you bet on games. Is that like, so after March 18th of 2007, did you just for the re- remainder of the season, not bet on any NBA games? Like how did that, what, what how did that season sort of play out? I believe that was the point where Batista um, had a drug problem and he had gone mm-hmm. into rehab. So that's when everything was kind of shut down at that point. Um, and that was also near the end of the, the regular season or not too far off. So um, right. that's when everything was was shut down at that point because he entered rehab. So there was, I, I guess the question is, because I'm, I'm as two people who are not so familiar with that world with Batista out of the picture for the remainder of the season, which, you know, now it's about a month away from the season. But back then it was it was closer um, and, and into the playoffs. There was no one sort of expecting anything like I, I just don't know how that works. You were just sort of allowed with Batista being a way to to wash your hands of it until of course the FBI came calling. Yeah. I mean, at that point he was the one that was placing the bets. He was the one that I was communicating with through Martino. So, you know, when he went into rehab, everything was kind of shut down at that point until, uh, you know, further notice, I guess, to a certain extent. And um, what I didn't know, or what a lot of us didn't know at that point, it was already an investigation going on. And then, you know, not too soon after that, the FBI knocked on Martino and Batista's door. They mm-hmm. they didn't come to, to my house. So I'm kind of curious, like in terms of other referees, um, do you could you see other referees following the same path you 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 went down? Like I asked that question because I think it's very easy. Sports sports betting is huge right now. Um, and so I'm not saying that the refs are doing it currently, but is it easy to kind of fall into that path of maybe officiating games, um, betting on games? Is it something that you think still kind of exists within within the league or um, were you scapegoated and kind of just... I think that's a great question. Yeah. Back then, gambling um, wasn't what it is today, right? Right. It wasn't pretty much legal. It wasn't, uh, uh, you know... A lot of the um, sponsors weren't what they are today with the league. Um, so the, the, the referees 
I don't believe were maybe betting on games, but what they were doing was ingratiating themselves with the league. And, you know, for example, Dick Bavetta said he was the NBA's go-to guy. He was put on game sevens to make sure certain teams won, even game sixes to make sure certain teams won. And um, with that, you know, they were promoted up the, the ranks and um, given extra playoff games and uh, bonuses. If you look at that famous um, Kings Lakers game in 2002, I don't know if you guys were familiar with that famous game yes. six. Um, you have three guys, that, <laughs> right? You have three guys that refereed that game in Delaney, Bavetta, and Bernhardt. And it went down as the worst officiating game in the history of sports. But yet those three guys went on to referee in the NBA finals and get a $50,000 bonus. So where in America can you basically screw your job up to the point where it's national news and continue on and get a huge bonus and, and get promoted to referee in the NBA finals? So, you know, it just really the, the refs weren't, uh, certain refs were allowed to do what they wanted. And, and even David Stern in a famous interview, when somebody asked him, um, what would be your ideal finals matchup? He said the Lakers versus the Lakers. So, you know, Bavetta knew that. He claimed that he was the NBA's go-to guy. And, uh, you know, he did things for the Lakers over the years because he felt that, and he knew that, um, that was the marquee matchup. And that's what got the league global attention with the Lakers being in the uh, playoffs in the finals. Of course, I'm muted. I, I just sort of want to add to that because I, I think bringing up the the oh sorry did you oh, no go ahead go ahead okay sorry. no because I, I think talking about the legalization of of sports betting is, is so important. It's something that we sort of have discussed here at length, and it sort of changes the entire conversation. I think that we have um, here. I guess my question to you is: Is the NBA prepared for the way for for what could arise with the with the league sort of being inundated with with sports betting, not just necessarily in regards to the referees, but coaches, players, anything like, and not to accuse anyone of doing anything or assume that anyone will, but like, is the do you think that the NBA is prepared for the potential future scandals that could arise with betting being all over us? I think they're prepared in the sense where when I was in the league, there wasn't any education, there really wasn't any warning, there wasn't any. Uh, time where they sat us down and said, be careful who you're hanging out with. This mm. is what can happen. I think now they're certainly educating the referees uh, to a major extent. Obviously, my situation was very well known. Uh, and the downfall um, that happened to me, if you really look at what happened to me, um, you know, I went to jail, I lost my job, my marriage fell apart. Uh, you know, my kids were uh, put through a very long, rocky road. So I think when people see what I did and what I went through um, as an NBA referee, I think the deterrent is there. But in the same uh, sense, I still think that there's a time where, uh, you know, somebody could be passing along information to a buddy, whether it's a player or a trainer or somebody where they can take advantage of, uh, you know, either an injury, uh, a sickness or, you uh, maybe a relationship with a referee and a, and a player that's, uh, you know, causing things to happen out on the floor, Foster and uh, Chris Paul. We all know that that's a situation where it seems like Chris Paul's always getting the short end of the stick or 
Um, when certain referees referee certain teams, you know, the team's record is not what uh, you think it would be if a, a referee was out there officiating in a biased manner. So I still think that there's things out there that some of these big sports bettors are following and right. pretty much taking advantage of. Um, and I, I'm always really curious about this because, you know, when they talk about NBA referees, it's the best in the game. These are the best in the business. And yet, it seems like everyone comes from Delco. <laughs> it seems like everyone comes from Delaware County. So, like, what is it? Is there something in the water that produces the best NBA referees from the same small county? Or does it sort of point to some some league culture that maybe needs some shifting? I think the NBA has taken steps to, to, to move past that and to diversify the NBA referee base. But what is it um, that that has that that has Delco refereeing the entire league with not just you know small name referees but some of the biggest names you mentioned Joe Gofford yourself of course and Malloy's Raptor fans <laughs> remember right. very well uh, so yeah uh, thoughts thoughts on that I think when you look at that area um, you had Earl Strom who was one of the first ones uh, you know Joe Crawford and when you see those guys from your area. Billy Oaks and uh, Javi, you start to think to yourself, I'm from this area. I kind of know them. They're very approachable. If you went to them and asked them for help, they would help you uh, and guide you and give you uh, some pointers on what you should do to, to get to that level. And uh, a lot of great basketball is in the Philadelphia area. So as a referee, if you're refereeing those great players in, in high school and rec leagues, you get to see those big bodies in the paint that maybe other officials aren't seeing. And then when you get to a camp where the NBA scouts are looking for officials, you know, maybe you're a little bit more well-prepared and uh, you look a little better than uh, somebody else does. But like you just said, um, now I think that um, you can take any good athlete, whether they're male or female out of college and start to train them in the manner that you want to train them. And within three, four or five years, they could be ready to referee professional basketball, either in the developmental league or eventually in the NBA. So it's just a matter of getting somebody that runs the floor well, is intelligent, is going to be in good shape and, uh, you know, has a basketball knowledge. And you can really train anyone over the course of time uh, to do the job. I think that's fair. I think, I think it's, yeah, that makes sense that when you see people from your area going and doing something that you're like, I can do this too. But then there's also the bit of, you can sort of train anyone to do this job really well. And it just so happens. I'm sure there are lots of connections. Of course, your father was a great college referee, your uncle uh, in the NBA. So there's, there are connections there that exist that I think are undeniable. We know that the NBA is a family um, in, in more of the ways than one. Um, Sandra, I feel like I'm, I'm hogging this. Is there a specific question? <laughs> I mean, I'm to you. curious. I feel like I, I, I'm coming with like controversial questions. So I'm trying to like chill out. Um, but I'm curious um, if sports betting was legal now, um, how do you think it would have affected if you were playing or you, sorry, you were refereeing um, and it was legal at the time you were refereeing, how do you think it would have affected your gambling habits um, and the way that you approached um, gambling at that time? You know, I think I probably would have done it a lot earlier and sooner if it was legal, because I think um, 
you know, it would have been easier for me to do it. Um, in the same sense, hopefully I wouldn't have done it because maybe they would have educated us a little bit more and I wouldn't have had that bug and that addiction to want to do it, knowing that I could lose everything. So, um, you know, it, it's tough. I, I like to think that, you know, if I could turn back time that I, that I wouldn't have done it, you know, based on a little bit more education from the league and, and knowing what it could have, uh, you know, cost me in the future. But I think just like anything, uh, you know, that you're addicted to, you would want to stop, but it's just very difficult to do it. Right. And I think to, to add to what Sandy's saying there as well, you know, since, since the scandal, of course, broke, the NBA has done a lot of things to, to improve transparency. You know, you have the two-minute report, you have Coach's Challenge. Um, also, do you watch the NBA? Just to interrupt my question with another one. <laughs> I, I do, but, you know, it's funny to me that, I don't know if you know this, but the NBA breaks down every single call that is made right. by an official. So why put out a two-minute report? Why not have the transparency of seeing the entire uh, report? It's very easy. Oh, so to... you're advocating for a 48-minute report? Because yeah, I know sure. a lot of people are like, just get rid of it. It just paints a bigger target on referees. But that's interesting. Yeah, interesting. Uh, because I, I think that there's, you know, you really want to know um, which officials have the best calling percentage because it's obvious to me that they still have the same, you know, five, six, seven guys that are always going to be in the NBA Finals till they decide to hang right. it up. And you know, right. for college basketball, men or women's, you really don't see the same officials doing the final four every year. They're always, you know, based on who had the best tournament or who had the best year. So you mean to tell me in the NBA, those same seven or eight guys year in and year out are the ones that have the best year. And those bonuses are substantial, right? We're like finals bonuses. Yeah. I guess like, so do you think, just to throw this to you, do you think that the reason that that doesn't come out is because of course with, the NBA right now, I think, is larger than it's ever been, of course. We know that with the money coming into the league, but also there are just more eyes and everyone has computers that have the brains of, um, you know, Einstein. So you can sort of just input any sort of data and get things. Do they not want a report that says, that that clearly lays out, I mean, we all know what Chris Paul's 14, at, uh, 0 and 14 in, in games that Scott Foster referees. That's an easy thing to point out, but once you get a breakdown of plays and calls, those cries from fans start to get yeah. much louder. Is that why you right. think the NBA doesn't not, do something like this? Not only that, but there's transparency there. And if you're going to say to me, James Capers is the best referee in the NBA. Well, wait a second. Let's go back over, right. you know, Ooh. if somebody really wants to take the time. And I know um, the guy in Philadelphia, his name, uh, the GM is slipping uh, his name's slipping my mind right now, but I know he had fast and don't have coffee. What's that? This is what happens when I fast and don't have coffee. Why don't right. I, <laughs> what is happening to me right now? Right. But he had referees on the outside breaking down, you know, getting the tapes and breaking down all the calls every NBA referee made. Daryl Morey. <laughs> Daryl Morey. That's it. There we go. Like, right. I'm sorry. So you would really know who the best referees are. Right. And if they were trying to hide somebody and saying they were better, you could really go through the calls and see, um, you know, I know he missed this call. Let's go back and see what the NBA said he did with this call. And I right. think it would be just so much more transparency that um, they don't want the fans to have. 
That's completely correct. And guys, I just want to defend myself. I Googled GM of Philadelphia 76ers, saw Elton Brand's face and was like, that's not him. It's definitely Daryl right. Murray. So I'm going to give myself a point. I didn't like, I'm tired of fasting, but I'm not that off uh, today. Um, I, I think that's, I think that's really interesting because to your point, I mean, if you're going to call certain referees, the best refs in the game and give them the bonuses of making the finals, well, let's take a look at what the numbers are. I think it makes sense for other referees to want it. I don't know if it's something that the, NBA referee association <laughs> yeah, with force. Yeah. I don't know, but right. I can I can see you know I can see a case being made for for all parties involved, which is really interesting. Now, um, the question that I interrupted myself with was, um, with the changes that the NBA has made, do you think that that would have stopped you at all? Like, would that have changed anything, or would it have been business as usual in terms of you betting on games? Like, would are these changes substantial enough that it can stop somebody or because to your point, we don't have full transparency. We have the final two minutes, which just don't rig games then. <laughs> not, right. not that you rig games, but I'm saying like you could like, it's very easy to just not do anything in the final two minutes of a game because that's where all eyes are going to be focused on regardless. No one pays attention right. to the first minute of the second quarter. Right. So would that have stopped you at all? You know, I, I don't know if it would have stopped me. Like I said, when you have an addiction, it's it's tough to to stop it. What would um, they have I caught think, you? I guess is a better way to phrase that. Would they have caught me? Um, I'm not sure because, again, if, you know, think about what I did. I went out and called what the NBA wanted me to call, right? So they said, crack down on traveling tonight. Uh, you know, so that's what I would do. Now, maybe I knew Kevin Garnett. Uh, you know, had that little skip in the in the paint that we were going to crack down that night. So I knew it was going to affect that that team. And, um, you know, just other things, you know, if a, a Joe Crawford, you know, I knew hated Mark Cuban or, you know, Bavetta was always giving favors to certain people. If he maybe uh, missed a call or had a situation the last time he had them, he would flat out say, you know, hey, last time I had Lamar Odom, you know, four of his five fouls or six fouls he fouled out weren't good. I got heat from the league. I kind of got to take care of him tonight. So, you know, that's something, you know, I would, you know, call someone up and say, Hey, listen, you know, Miami's going to probably win by 15 tonight and look for Lamar Odom to have 20, you know, and get to the line 10 times. So, you know, it's just something that, uh, you know, I shouldn't have done. I did. And, you know, when I, when I talk with my attorney today, you know, he says, Tim, you know, if you took that to court, I'm not sure, you know, it would have been something that you would have been found guilty of based on the league wanting to have everything thrown out so quickly. And, um, you know, just the charging with wire fraud for, you know, the, you know, and gambling, it would, it would have been tough. He, he felt, you know, for the, the prosecutors to put a case on that wouldn't embarrass the league to the point that it would have to for them to find me guilty because the NBA was really able to get everything shut down so quickly when it came to, you know, getting Batista's case, you know, through the system and nobody else getting charged when Phil Scala came out and said, you know, there were several other referees that they wanted to indict and, you know, everything just got shut down at the, you know, highest level. It's like you you have an uh, uh, an eye on our notes because I think that was the next yeah. thing we're gonna get into. Which <laughs> I'm is, like, that's perfect. Which is, do you think that the NBA is because because obviously a story leaked for those who are aren't familiar with the story, a story leaked to the story leaked to the New York Post, and um, 
also you you mentioned it with the Batista not getting you you would have testified I'm not mistaken if if he did not get the deal right. he'd gotten and right. so you believe that the NBA was the one that sort of put a stop to that no doubt the NBA was uh pretty much running this whole uh situation and what people don't know and and you know even be from the New York Post to Netflix to 60 Minutes to every um you know news organization that I was on every interview I've ever given you know, a lot of people know that this guy, Greg Andres, who was the head United States attorney that was working the case, two months after my case was over, he retired and went to a firm that started getting all the outside legal counsel for the NBA, all their mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. So this guy went from probably making 250 grand a year to, you know, well over a million. So for some reason, you know, people don't think that that's a, a major piece of news but to me that that, you know shows so much because David Stern offered Phil Scala a job Mm -hmm. uh, who was one of the FBI agents Um, and then you see this head United States attorney you know leaving and getting a a major major job and and making you know triple his or four times what he was making. Do you do you think that that's why we'll never get a referee post-retirement come out and and confirm uh you know the allegations that you're making is do you think that the nba is sort of making sure to take care of everybody so that when it's time no, to I, retire right I also think like point, there's no there's no forced age of retirement in the nba dick the veteran yeah i don't so, know what it actually states now if they're allowed to talk even after they retire but a lot of them okay. you know go into being uh some type of uh, you know, supervisor that sits at the games and charge calls. Right. Um, Steve Jobs works for ESPN and, and yeah. Right. But the thing is, is that, you know, there were some guys like Mike Mathis who interviewed with 60 Minutes and said, yeah, a lot of stuff I was saying was truthful. They were telling people, you know, what to call at halftime. They were texting us and telling us, you know, during playoff games, you know, what they wanted us to, to do. And, uh, you know, it always was in favor of the team that was down in the series to, you know, basically prolong it a little bit. So there were referees that were, you know, older that, you know, like Mathis and some other guys that really didn't want to be, you know, identified. But when the FBI went out and did an investigation, they said that I was telling the truth. And that's why Phil Scholar wrote the forward for my book and mm-hmm. said that I basically told the truth at every turn. And he read the book before he wrote the forward for it. What do you think you would have found if they were able to wire you up? You know, I think that, uh, you know, they would have found a lot. I think, you know, if you, you would have had a conversation with Bavetta, the way he openly talked, uh, you know, I think that that would have been extremely, extremely uh, detrimental to the NBA. Of oh, course, we talked about what, if we could press a little bit? Just, oh, you can press all you want. Um, <laughs> basically, um, you know, how, you know, he made certain calls for certain teams and forced game sixes and game sevens uh, based on, you know, what was going to be best for the league. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of games that he officiated, you know, Lakers in Portland where, you know, there, there's a fourth quarter where the free throw discrepancy is like 20 or, you know, the Lakers in Sacramento and he, and the Lakers got to that, uh, you know, won that game six when they shouldn't have and went on to win a game seven and go into the NBA finals and, and beat the Nets. So it's just, um, you know, a lot of things that he would openly discuss, whether, he was in person or over the phone and so would, uh, you know, other referees Crawford and, you know, 
it would have been extremely detrimental to the league if if that would have took place. Tammy, you got anything? <laughs> just we're, we're processing. No, I'm sorry. I'm just processing. Well. I, yeah, I, 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 that that's like the the big question, and of course, it if the league, you know, we're. To, allegedly if the league is the one that sort of put a stop to all of this by leaking the story good move <laughs> right and, and that's what, that's what i always say to everyone whether it was a negotiation for our collective bargaining agreement um anything that had to do with david stern he was always one step ahead of you whether right. it was the officials whether it was the players whether it was the owners he was a genius he was a marketing genius when he came in and and took Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and made them the face of the league. And then, of course, Michael Jordan came along and, you know, sky was the limit. So this mm-hmm. guy was, you know, you got to give him his props. He was a he was a very, very smart man. He was a marketing genius. And uh, he knew do what you to think, do. Do you think the Ewing ballot is real? Do you think the conspiracy about that? Because speaking of a marketing genius, speaking of someone who's a step ahead, New York needs a star. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do, you know, personally, I do think that it, it was done purposely. I, I do think that there's, you know, nothing that he would have done. Phil Scala told me he was as cunning and as So I got to blame him for Andrea Bargnani. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, always sir. Back to the rest. Sorry, sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> yeah, um, Phil Scala, who was the FBI agent, said he was as evil and as cunning as any mob boss he ever investigated. So, um, you know, with him saying that, that just uh, goes to show you at what lengths he would go, uh, you know, for the league. Yeah, I mean, these are these are like sort of conversations. I think that there are conspiracies that exist for a reason. They're unprovable, which is why you know it's, it's, we're just sort of talking here. But hey, there's I mean, where there's smoke, <laughs> there is fire. Um, I mean, before you go, we're gonna do something called. The quick oh wait day. wait do we have do we have more questions about I like mm-hmm. I, I I do I like I do I think I think there's more to this story as well right because there there's two parts of the story and that's kind of how I saw it and that's why I wanted to bring you on I think there's the Tim Donahue story right there is a scandal there is a referee but like that that is of course going to make major news when a referee bets on games including his own but then there's a story about the NBA and and I think we we're we're having this conversation today because I think these stories continue on um and you know even I'm trying to find the right way to word this because I think there's there's a bigger conversation there. You say if you were a wire, we would have found a lot on you know guys like Steve. No, I didn't. You didn't say that. Guys like you know Joey Crawford, Dick Pavetta, things that, that were said around. And I mean, these are two of the biggest names in in refereeing. Of course, both guys that that are retired right now. Um, but I guess like we mentioned Foster. I think it's important to sort of ask about him as well. I think that like in terms of continuing out a series, in terms of playing that Dick Bavetta role, I think Scott Foster was 19-2 and two in uh, games beyond game one where a team was down uh, to, to tie the series up and to elongate that series. We talked about his record with um, with uh, Chris Paul and, you know, Daryl Morey, someone who tracks all of this stuff, his record against the Houston Rockets. All of these things are, are top of, of, you know, conversation. As Raptor fans, we had the Scotty Barnes ejection earlier this year as well. And so... We have to ask because I think it's a part of the conversation. You had 134 calls with Scott Foster between um, October and March of, of 2006, 2007. Um, 
he's a part of the story. And I know you, you sort of have, you, you've said, you've said it already, but we just have to ask you on our platform, was there anything there? What were those calls about? Is there smoke where there's smoke? Is there also sort of fire here as well in the same way we just said about the NBA? You know, definitely. And it's a question like you just said, needs to be asked. And, you know, he was the godfather to my daughter. I was the godfather, uh, you know, to his son. So um, we talked two, three times a day when we were on the road because we were bored. Um, you know, did I pick his brain and, and ask him about his crew that night and ask him about relationships that might spill out onto the floor? Absolutely, I did. But was he knowingly involved in saying, hey, Tim, you know, put money on this game for me? He definitely was not. Um, it was just a, a, a situation where he got a lot of heat because he was my best friend at the time. And all those phone calls were, were definitely Did there. Did he not know? He knew I loved to gamble, uh, okay. you know, because we gambled together, whether it was on the golf course or betting some football games. Uh, he definitely knew I was gambling. But did he know that I was gambling on NBA games? Definitely not. And, um, you know, he was, uh, you know, somebody that I just talked to. And, and not only him, you know, I talked to Wonderlick a lot. Or if you check Foster's uh, phone records, he probably talked to other referees a lot. Because when you're on the road, you know, you can talk to your wife or your kids for only so long. And you're in that hotel room, you're, you're so bored. It's like, who can I call? And of course, you want to call another referee because they know maybe they're on the road or, you know, they're bored too, or, you know, whatever the situation is. But it was just something that, you know, when you're, you have that job, it's just, it's so boring at times. You just look to pick up the phone and talk to anybody that will listen. I guess like and outside of outside of Scott Foster, was there anyone in, in the sort of refereeing group that that knew only because you guys are sort of a group onto yourselves in the same way that the NBA is a brotherhood, you know, the referee association is a brotherhood. We talked about a lot of people coming from Delaware County and if not specifically there, somewhere maybe around the Pennsylvania area or New Jersey area, like not not too far away. Um you guys are close. You guys are on the road a lot. Of course, there were other scandals that happened uh, with, you know, tax evasion and things like that. Do you guys talk on the road? Do people, were people maybe having inklings or were you just good at hiding it? Like, how did that sort of play out? I think I was good at hiding it, but they definitely knew that I, I liked to gamble because we would and gamble. And that's also illegal in terms of like the, the CBRA or like what the, the laws right. that you guys have. Okay. Right. We had a contract. We weren't allowed to place a bet. Uh, of any kind. So when David Stern got up on that, you know, platform and said, you know, legal gambling will cost you your job and illegal gambling will cost you your freedom. Then he realized, oh, wait a minute, I have 58 referees and I just did an investigation and 54 of them gamble, whether it's at the casino or placing bets on football or whatever. So he realized that that statement was something that he had to backpedal from. Um, and, but they knew that I had taken it to a a whole nother level. All my close friends knew that I was pretty much out of control. And, and, you know, looking back on the a whole scandal, they probably said to themselves, yeah, we should have probably got him help or sat him down and talked to him and, and, you know, told him that, you know, he's crossing a line that he shouldn't be near. So some of my good friends, Javi, Wonderlick, Foster, you know, Crawford, they, they knew that uh, I'm sure looking back that it was something that was out of control. But yeah, that that's fair. That that does that. That's fair. I think that does make sense. And I guess where I sort of sit with this, huh? Like in terms of refereeing, or in terms of betting, does the referee, the player, 
or uh, yeah, the referee or the or the player on the court. Who do you think? And, and not to accuse any player of point shaping or anything like that, but who do you think has more effect on on the outcome of of a ball game? Do you think that referees are number one in terms of like how they can affect a game? Of course, you know if you have like a Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant like trying to stop them, but. I guess calling fouls on them is, is the way to stop it. So do referees, back to the question, have sort of the biggest say on how games are determined? And if so, does the NBA need to be more transparent? Yeah, I think the referees definitely do. And again, when you talk about the league putting officials in a room, 11 o'clock in the morning, especially during a playoff series, and going over plays that happened in the prior games and saying, these referees missed this, these calls. Mm-hmm. You need to crack down on these calls. And so like Kevin calls, Garnett is setting, setting illegal screens. We can ignore it for 81 games, but you better right. call it tonight. But now, okay. you know, they're up three games to one in a playoff series. We're going to crack down on it to get it to three, one, three, two, maybe even three, three, make millions and millions of dollars. And then in a game seven, let it go and let, let them win and, you know, move on. So, you know, it's a series. It's a thing where the league through the referees definitely has the power to control the narrative of the games. and either uh, have these series go on in order to create more revenue and TV, uh, you know, excitement uh, than, than anybody else. And they do it because if you look at the college and I hate to keep going back to that, but if you look at the college game, the rules are strictly enforced as they're written in the rule book, right? You go to the NBA. I don't think either one of us watch much college, but we'll take your right. word for it. You, you go we'll to the NBA, your... right? Yeah. And you know, does it say, you know, there's a rule for traveling, but if you're LeBron James, you can take six steps. Uh, so I, you know, I told you, I, you know, we told you that like we have a list of questions of people that people want to ask referees. One of them is, "What is a travel?" What is a travel? Right. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows. I don't think the NBA knows. But all I know is that if you're um, a star and yeah. the name on the back of that jersey sells a lot of jerseys and shoes, then you're allowed to take maybe one or two or even three more steps than anybody else. Right. So uh, it just seems like, like you're the, talking about Giannis. A Euro, a Euro step right. becomes a, a, a Greek step. <laughs> it's, it's a different rule. Um, no, but uh, okay. So, so to what you just said, and I think it's fair, the NBA, uh, you know, David Stern is, is a, was a brilliant marketer and the NBA would much prefer to have the Lakers in the finals and the Sacramento Kings, right? Like we can understand theoretically how, maybe because we don't believe that every like the Raptors won a championship I don't know if the NBA was like yeah <laughs> go Toronto you know like yes we want a Bucks Suns finals I don't know that that was sort of top of the list so we know that games somehow play out but game six is something that I can't I don't think can be ignored and it makes sense because of marketing dollars it's in their benefit and it's in their interest so another question that we just have to ask you is you know you mentioned that you don't you never sort of fix the game but it is in your best interest, I would imagine, for your picks when you're talking to Batista, who, who's working with the Gambino family, to, to hit. And so were you not influenced by the fact that, like, hey, if it's a close game and this team is favored by X amount of points, like, I'm going to sit this star player out or I'm going to call a foul here and send this guy to the line. Were you not influenced by your picks that you made in the games that you were referencing? And that, that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. You know, I was fortunate enough that my record was so good in picking these games based on relationships with the officials and the, and the players and the, and the uh, coaching staff and even the owners that there was never a situation where, you know, we lost, you know, four or five games in a row and, 
we needed a win or, you know, I was going to come home and see my dog hanging from a tree, you know? So it was a situation where, you know, the record was so good. I, in my mind, even thought a loss now and then would help because, you know, I didn't want things to be so obvious. So I was just very lucky that it never came to that point where, you know, there was so much pressure on me to get a win. If, you know, we would have lost maybe three, four, five in a row, maybe that would have been, you know, something different. There would have been some sit down along the way to say, you know, we just lost, uh, you know, close to a billion dollars. So, you know, you need to start turning this around and whether the league's telling you to call certain things and crack down on certain things, you're going to, you know, put Kobe Bryant to the bench, LeBron James to the bench, Shaq to the bench. So a team loses because we need to cash in, but it never got to that point where so much pressure was on me to do that. Fair enough. And, and how much, how much influence did the end? Like you, you mentioned that they sort of, you know, you, you would have those calls prior to games and they would tell you to crack down on X play, but how often did that happen? How much influence do you think the league had on games being played um, and, and playoff series? In the playoffs, um, you would sit down with somebody from the league office before every playoff game. Mm-hmm. So they had, and the meeting would take place for an hour at 11 o'clock in the morning prior to going to lunch where it would continue for another hour. But prior to going to lunch, you would have video and they would show you specific examples of things that they want to call that night. Now that guy at that arena is also grading you. So um, he has a say in whether you move on to the next round, get another game, uh, you know, and, and, you know, make a lot more money moving forward. So you're going to do everything that he wants you to do, which is coming from the league office so that you get a better grade. So, you know, it's, it's all controlled from the, from the league office. Think, do you think a lot of it was biased or do you think it was like, this is a foul we'll call this? Like, I, cause I know that there are going to be moments where like we mentioned, if they're going to want the Lakers in over the Kings in the finals, it makes sense. Um, you know, in, in 2002 and we, we saw them in 2000, it's really tough for the NBA to get people to watch games. Lakers Celtics needing to happen in, <laughs> in a way was really, right. really important for them. Right. So we know that there's sort of series and, and games, but like, how prevalent was it that like they would tell you with well, the in, in a game, yeah. in a game, there's a lot of calls that are missed both ways. Right. right. So you can, if you really go from start to finish, you can find calls both ways. But what they did was, is they always showed you the plays that they wanted to go against the team that was up in the series. So they kind of brainwashed you to a certain extent so that when you went out on that floor, you were looking for certain things that were going to put, teams at advantages or disadvantages. And I write about this in the book with Yao Ming. Um, Dallas, Houston was up uh, two games to none. They win the first two games in Dallas in a playoff series. Um, And Mark Cuban goes nuts and says, Yao Ming setting illegal screens. He's traveling in the post. Of course, that filters down to us. And in the meeting, you know, they say, call the traveling on Yao Ming, call the illegal screens. You know, and what happens is, is, Dallas wins the next two games on Houston's home court. It goes seven and they end up winning in seven games. So it's just, um, you know, they can control the narrative when and if they want to through the officials who they're paying an enormous amount of money and playoff bonuses to. So you're going to do whatever, you know, your boss tells you to do. Like, I don't know what you two young ladies do, but if your boss comes to you and says, I want you to do this, this, and this, and I want it done by tomorrow, you're going to do it because 
You want to be paid. You want that job. And, you know, you want to be looked at as somebody that's uh, performing well. So you're, of course, going to do what you're told to do. David Stern's bosses are the board of governors, right? Like uh, they, they were the board of governors, uh, Adam Silver's bosses now. So what, like uh, you mentioned Mark Cuban, who has been a very vocal uh, official and, you know, talking about one of the worst refereed series, in my opinion, Dallas, I think most people's opinions, uh, Dallas Mavericks and, and the Miami Heat. Um, so what role, like if, 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 you know, what we're saying, if these allegations are, are sort of true, how do NBA owners who have paid a lot for their team and make a lot of money on these teams allow something like that to happen when, you know, for us as fans, it breaks my heart, but I'm not Larry Tannenbaum. I don't have the pockets of him. It's not going to hurt my pockets. Yeah. You just, you just answered your own question because I said to Mark Cuban, right. Yeah. I said to Mark Cuban, my attorney, this was 10 years ago. I, you know, my attorney saying David Stern's going to have to retire. He said, Tim, it will never happen. And I said, why? He said, he has made these owners so much money over the years that he is not going anywhere. And, you know, the bottom line is they knew what he he was doing, right? They knew what he built the league on, which was, you know, the presence of stars and, and jerseys and sneakers and, and, you know, global attention. So, you know, what are they going to do? You know, you know, cut it, their nose off to spike their face. It's, it's a situation where, you know, he, he built it and put a lot of money in each and every one of their pockets. So, uh, you know, they're going to ride with him to continue to get that done. Very nice. A, a question I have just for referees. It's not even on our list of referee questions. No one asked this. You, you guys are fans of teams, right? Like uh, as a kid, full, full uh what am I what's the word transparency here I wanted to be a referee to rig games for the Raptors I was seven years old and I was sick and tired of the losses I was like referees have an agenda against us I'm, I'm here to do it uh so do you grow up and being like hey I'm, I'm still a Sixers fan or because as people who cover the league now and write about basketball I can find myself sort of weaning off of the diehard nature of being a Raptors fan winning a championship helps but um so so like how is that for referees yourself and, and for the rest of them? Like, do you guys still kind of hold true to your hometown teams? You know, I think it's exciting to see your hometown team win because, you know, it's more buzz in, uh, you know, when you're at the supermarket and you see certain people, but, you know, by the time you get there through all the training and, and everything that you go through, you, you really just are there to, uh, you know, officiate the, the, um, you know, the games you are really not, you know, hoping that, uh, your your home team wins. You're you're not a fan in that way. I think you're not waiting for point. free throws, being like break it, break it, break right, it. Right, right. <laughs> fair, fair enough. I mean, I wouldn't call a foul. I didn't see anything. Uh, never happened. Um, that's that's really interesting. You said if you have a question, we have, we've got someone who was a referee for a long time in the NBA. Like, do you have a referee question? Because we we mentioned we're gonna get into the list of questions when we ask some people. We we just got some. We call them a quick dish. It's a nice rapid fire questions. But to start off, Sandy, do you have something for him? Do you have a Raptors bias? <laughs> um, is there a Raptors bias? <laughs> that, is, that, Raptors is, that is a dishes question. The Raptors? Do they hate flying to Canada? Do they hate Can you give us Ed Malloy's number? Raptors. I'd like to send him a gift basket, maybe. Right. You know, it's, it's been funny. a long time since I've seen a win, Ed. <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, you know, when I was there anyway, when Tor- you saw Toronto on your schedule, you kind of cringed a little bit because. You know, there wasn't much to do there. You had to go through customs. It was just, you know, 
fair. It, it was just, you know, you didn't really know anyone there. So it was kind of tough when you saw uh, Vancouver or Toronto on your schedule. Um, but as time went on, you did start to, to meet people there. And it is a fun and exciting city. But, uh, you know, from a global uh, attention, I don't think the, the league is hoping they, they win too many uh, more championships. Damn. Too bad. Too truth. bad, Adam. <laughs> We're not winning another championship, guys. Enjoy the one too, that we got. Too bad. Kawhi Leonard, come back. Come back home, son. Uh, no, I think I think that's I think that's an interesting question. Cause like, yeah, we we talk about superstars not wanting to come to Toronto for a long time. And a lot of that was customs. A lot of that is, you know, being stuck here in our winters. But most of the East Coast is cold. I'm gonna be honest. Not a lot to do in Oklahoma City. I'd much rather be in Toronto, Thank which you. is one of the best cities. There, the, Toronto, in terms of city, it's New York, it's Los Angeles, Miami, because of the weather there. But like Toronto's pretty up there. Chicago. Um. So, so I, I think that's interesting. But let's let's get into the rapid, uh, the dish, the quick dish questions that we have there. Sandy, do you have the list with you? I do. So, first question: um, What do you do during halftime? Because we but see like, y'all run off, and then it's like. Are you drinking a coffee? What are you, you guys have yeah, like basically. you guys have a coach sort of <laughs> crew chief <laughs> has a board there and is calling players. Right. So it's uh, I think it's 15 minutes. You're in there, you're drinking some water, you're looking at a little VCR and going over plays that you may have thought were controversial or you missed in the um, you know, the first half. Maybe a player said or a coach said you listen, look at that at halftime. I think you missed that. So they'll be looking for you. You know, when you walk out at halftime and they expect you to be honest and say, you know, whether you missed it or not. And I think they know whether you missed it. So you earn credibility if you're at least honest and you said, you know, you were right. I missed that. Hopefully I won't, you know, do it again. And also you're discussing, you know, people that may be in foul trouble saying, you know, let's make sure if we're going to call another foul on them. It's a it's an obvious foul or if there's two people there, you know, give it to the person that doesn't have. Uh, you know, a situation where they're in foul trouble. So there's some strategy that, you know, you're going over matchups, uh, you know, number of fouls people have and any game situations that uh, might have caused some problems in the first half. I, like, I, I know we said this is going to be a quick dish, but I've got to ask, did you see what Pat Bev did? Like, did you see him sort of bringing the camera to show the referee the missed call? How would you have responded to a player doing something like that to you at the end of a game uh, heading into overtime? You know, I, I think it's a situation where you have to ignore him and, uh, you know, knowing that you're going to see him again. And when you do see him again, he'll probably end up getting a couple quick ticky tack fouls that he wouldn't have gotten if he wouldn't have done that. All right. All right. Another question. I'm so sorry. I'm interrupting this so much because as Raptor fans, sort of the conversation that we started off talking about uh, officiating was because of um, Scott Foster first throwing um, uh, Scotty Barnes out of a out of a close game in the fourth quarter because Scotty Barnes is, is a very vocal about calls, right? When he thinks he gets a call or doesn't get a call, he's very vocal. He, he does sort of complain to referees, and I think Scott Foster is like, enough of this. And then the following game, Ben Taylor giving um, Fred Van Vliet a, a technical because Fred Van Vliet was telling and to be fair, Scotty Barnes did use the word cheating. And I think, of course, we talked about it. Scott Foster is going to be a little bit more sensitive to that word. Um, and then you have someone like Fred Van Vliet, who basically told the team, there's no point in coming, like, there's no point in complaining. 
they they're not we don't have the friendly whistle tonight we're just not having that and talking to his team and getting them to calm down and so and getting a technical there and as someone who's sort of watching these two interactions and I get these are two different referees Ben Taylor and and Scott Foster but my question to you here as a referee which tactic do you prefer do you prefer the, the player the young player who is going to chirp about the calls or a veteran player who gets his team as a team leader and saying, hey, let's not let's not fuss about, because I think for players, it kind of makes it difficult to not know what direction to really take, because, you know, you seem to not like the chirping, but you seem to not like the team leader kind of quieting it down for everybody as well. And so I guess my question to you is, as a referee, I know everybody's different, but what what did you prefer to not eat you know, out there? I, I think you want to have a relationship with that veteran player to where, um, you can say to them, hey, listen, enough's enough. Get these guys under control or it's not going to, uh, you know, end well for you guys. So I think if you have that relationship with a veteran player, you can go to him and and get some assistance in trying to get the team a little bit more under control than what they are so that, uh, you know, the game doesn't turn into a circus. And like, I'm not sure if you you heard his comments, but you sort of talk about this in your book in regards to Alan Iverson and I think his comments about Steve Javi. Um Fred had some some scorching comments um, about about Ben Taylor in particular, but also talking about certain referees called them dicks, I believe. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned that like, hey, next game against AI, that's going to be, you know, referees are a brotherhood in the same way that players are a brotherhood. Do you think that that's sort of a similar thing that exists in the league today where you have a player who comes out and says some positive things about lots of referees, but also comes out very strongly against one younger referee in the game? Do you think that the other the other refs are thinking to themselves, all right, this is someone that we maybe call fouls quite early on or call. I think I think in the case of Alan Iverson, it was calling travel so that you're not getting those sort of foul calls. Do you think that that's something that we could probably see in terms of retaliation? Does that still exist in the NBA today, in your opinion? You know, I think so. Again, you know, it's subjective when you come uh, to the point of traveling. We discussed it earlier or, you know, uh, ticky tack fouls with hand checking. So you can call them on people when you want, if you want, at any real time that you want. So if there's a situation where, uh, you know, you um, had a bad situation with a guy two weeks ago or your best buddy had a situation with them two nights ago, yeah, you're going to go out there and you're going to basically, you know, have a little fun with it and enforce the rules uh, in a way that's going to benefit you and the league is going to support you. And that's the problem with the league is that they have too many things that are so subjective, depending on who the referee is that night, depending on who the, uh, you know, the names on the front and the back of the jersey. So until they get that out of the game and the rules or are uh, enforced as they're written and, um, you know, basically the way they do it in college, you're going to always have situations where fans are going to be upset. Any next question? Um, so as a ref, I'm assuming you have to be able to see um, people making mistakes on the floor um, intentionally or, or unintentionally. unintentionally. Um, do you have to get your, your vision checked regularly? Like, how does that work? Because I have never seen a ref with glasses ever. So, Right. It's uh, funny that most people don't realize this, that... Um, Referees don't wear glasses. If you, if you have poor vision, it's contacts because, you know, you would get so much heat from fans yelling at you, get your glasses checked, that it's just like kind of an unwritten rule to wear contacts if your vision's poor. But 
in the beginning of each uh, season, the referees have to go through a, a intense physical, uh, you know, your eyes, your heart, um, you know, uh, cholesterol and all that stuff. So it is a pretty intense physical that each official goes through at the beginning of the season. That actually makes sense because you have to be able to run with all these like six, seven, like crazy athletes. So right. it, I never actually really thought about it, but I'm assuming your heart has to be in good condition to do that. Right, for sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Also, like as as a crew chief, do you feel obligated to make a makeup call when someone else on the crew messes up? That's a great question, actually. It is. Um, you don't want to, um, you know, you're not supposed to make a makeup call, but you want to make sure that, uh, you know, one thing that will really upset coaches is when there's a, not a balance of what's being called at one end being called down the other end. So you really don't want to make something up, but you want to uh, make sure that it's even. So you will see a ticky tack foul called down at one end. You should go down the other end and it's the crew chief's job uh, being that he has the most experience to pick up on these type of things to make sure there's a balance and uh, things are being called the same at both ends. Another example would be if you had a bang, bang play, say it was a block charge and a charge mm -hmm. was called. Now you go down the other end, if it's a bang, bang play, and now somebody calls a block, you know, the coach is going to go berserk because if it could have went either way and it was a, a block down the other end, it should be a block, you know, so that's just a, a little thing that, you know, you can look for to make sure that uh, there's a balance and, you know, the crew chief is, is making sure it's called the same way at both ends that if, um, you know, that's not being done, that's, that's a reason why you'll see a coach maybe get a technical foul or a player becoming extremely upset quickly. What are your thoughts on double attacks? Personally hate them. Blame someone. Yeah, it, it's funny. It's, it's kind of just like an easy way to try to get calmness to the game. So when players see, oh, double, you know, technical fouls, everybody immediately wants to calm down because the next one, an ejection. But, you know, I agree with you that uh, it should be, you know, whoever started it, you know, hit them with the tech quick and hopefully that guy won't retaliate. But if he does, then, you know, obviously you have to hit him with the technical too. But, you know, I like the fact that, you know, you get the, the instigator first and once the players realize that that's what's going to happen, I don't think that they're going to retaliate, um, you know, as often as they do today. Tanya, we both staring at the next question, which we've asked, which is like, do you hate Canada in all caps? It's what Raptor fans want to know. Do refs hate Canada? <laughs> you know, like I said, when, when you look at your schedule, uh, you know, there's a couple places you don't want to go to. Uh, Detroit, uh, Milwaukee, Toronto. So, uh, you know, it's do they hate it? No, but, you know, there's definitely other places that, uh, you know, you're, you're wishing you were going to other than Toronto. <laughs> Oh no. We're, 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 you're, you're, Toronto being put beside Milwaukee and Detroit is offensive. Yeah, Detroit is, is uh, a shithole. So I apologize <laughs> for that. But uh, maybe they're not, a, you're not down with Detroit. But, you know, it's just, it's just a situation where it, you know, you don't want to see Toronto too many times on your schedule that home team we need we need like a drink for referees that's what we need we need to produce a drink for referees. he changed the perception amongst he players did. He, he changed the perception did. amongst players we need the same effect for referees 
And Malloy, I will send you a muffin basket, please. <laughs> um, and then the final question, which is funny, and it just made me laugh that people were asking this because it's, you know, we talked about it. What is traveling? What What is a travel? Because I can watch three different guys doing the exact same move and it might get called a travel if it's, you know, an OG and OB, if it looks less fluid, if the player looks a little bit less fluid with the basketball. Um, but yeah, like, or, or you know, what what is a moving screen? What 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 is a block charge? Because right. it does get sort of called differently. Um, and I know that we we sort of talked a lot about how a lot of these calls you you mentioned it, especially in a playoff series, the team that's that's down in the series, you're sort of going to favor them and say, look, you know, Yao Ming, that's illegal. What he's doing there because you want Dallas to come kind of come back and tie that up, but like. How much before the season begins does the NBA get you guys to focus in on specific rules? Because to me, like I remember, and this is this is after your time with the NBA, but I remember when the flopping rule came into effect, it seemed like the first two, three weeks of the season, everything was a flop. And then as the season sort of continued out, that just wasn't called as much anymore. And re- like this past season or the last season, it was the rip through, right? Where if a player has a rip through, you're not going to get sent to the free throw line. And now as the season has kind of continued on, you get them all the time and guys are shooting free throws. And so like, how does that work out? And why, why do we see these rules being enforced so much early on in the season? And then it seems to fall to the back burner by the end of the year. Uh, again, great question. They have a, um, a camp for the officials a week before the season starts and they'll have points of emphasis and you know, it may be traveling. Uh, they'll have maybe five things. And so the officials will come out of the gates and you'll see, you know, everything cracked down for, like you said, two or three weeks. And then as the league is progressing, the office will say, you know, we need to crack down on, uh, you know, rough playing the paint. Then you'll see a million calls, uh, you know, in, in the paint, um, you know, impeding progress or, or um, maybe they'll say, you know, there's too much, uh, you know, traveling. So they'll go all of a sudden for two weeks, crack down on traveling. And then there's always a new point of emphasis that will take place uh, at different points of the, of, of the year. And that's what the officials do. And uh, you know, that's why you'll see uh, a spike in certain things because, you know, the, the league office is coming out and saying, you know, we want you to look for this. So like the trends just change. How often do those memos go out? Is it when something big happens and they're like, we've got to crack down on this? Or is it like, oh, it's quarterly review. We're going to get a memo come out to us. It's just, um, it, it's really a situation where, you know, the, the people in the league office will get together and have meetings from time to time. And when they feel like something's hurting the game or slowing the game down or, uh, you know, being a detriment to the game, they'll tell the officials to, you know, crack down on certain things to, to get it out of the game. So it really all depends on, on what's going on. Uh, and how the flow of the game is is progressing at different times. And, uh, you know, they use the referees to clean everything up. This has been really fascinating. I still, I feel like I have so many more questions. Like, I'm just remembering now that, like, uh, dancers and, and players, they're not allowed to sort of interact with each other. You know, if a dancer for a specific team is is in a restaurant or something and a player comes in, I do believe they have to leave. I think those are sort of the rules to make sure that there's, you know, we're sort of separating them how does that work for referees? Is that a similar thing where if you're out at a restaurant and you see LeBron James come in, do you guys have to leave? Are you allowed to have a relationship with the player? Are you allowed to have a relationship with the coach? Or does the league sort of tap down on that to make sure that 
you know, it's not overt, at least these these relationships that, you know, players and coaches right. and referees you don't have. have. You don't have to leave, but you're really not supposed to have relationships. But uh, I think I write in my book, like Derek Stafford had, uh, you know, Barkley's telephone number or um, uh, um, Eddie Rush had Jordan's okay. phone number, hooked him up with that girl who ended up ruining his marriage. So, yes, um, you know, those things happen. And, yes, it spills out onto the floor. If, if you know, Eddie Rush is having Jordan's telephone number and hooking him up with women on the side, yeah, he's going to give him favorable calls, you know, on the court because God knows what else is going on off the court between the two of them. So um, those things, like I said, positive and negative relationships uh, spilled out onto the floor, and there are things that I, I knew about and, and unfortunately, I used to, to place winning bets. All right. Sandy, do you have any more questions? I feel like we, we learned so much and I, I'm, I'm glad that we did this because I think we talked a lot about refereeing. We talked a lot about officiating in the league, but also the scandal and and how so much of this is also about the NBA. As much as this is about Tim Donahue, there is a whole other side to it, which is the NBA. And unfortunately, we really didn't get to we didn't get to see a lot of it because, and maybe it's fortunately, I don't know. I like the NBA. I would hate if, if things had just majorly changed selfishly, but um it there there's definitely more going on there and i love the, the bit about ewing and and the knicks i find that that's fun <laughs> sandy do you have anything think, to add i think what's interesting after having this conversation is just how interconnected everything is you know prior to this conversation i thought there was definitely like division in terms of the relationships between ref and the league, the officials there and the referees. Like I, I really did th think that there was a little bit more, like they were a little bit more separate, but I'm realizing through this conversation that it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Um, these, these players have relationships with these refs. These refs can dictate things depending on um, who they're interacting with the day they're interacting with them maybe they've had a bad day the weather sucks in fucking toronto so i'm gonna i'm gonna shit on this one player cause some some or some or let's make this series wrap up in six so i don't have to come back here <laughs> or call um you can Kawhi, see the Raptors did not get that, swept by the wizards <laughs> so like there's it's just so it's it's interesting to have this conversation because i went into this um really just um, you know, we, we thought we were going to just be talking to Tim about his experience as a ref. And um, it was a wonderful conversation. But I think what I'm coming away with is that it's just so much deeper um, than I initially, initially thought. It's, I'm really happy we had this conversation. It's really, I think, I think this is, I think there's, I think there's a lot of great takeaways. And I, I, you know what, I'm a, I'm a fan. Maybe I'm just a fan of the nerdy stuff, but I like learning about referees. Like I like, I like learning about the sort of ins and outs. I like learning about the, the questions that we would never literally be able to ask a referee. And I guess the last question that I have for you, because this probably points to it, because Sandy, you mentioned it, the refs are human and that's what it kind of come down to. Like you guys are humans at the end of the day. And so you can fall into illegal things like gambling, but you can also not want to go to a cold city or not want to do X, Y, and Z. And so do you think that the NBA is going to try, like, do you think they're going to start to make some changes? Of course, now you have, you know, three guys on the court, I believe you have one person back in Secaucus, is it? Um, sort of watching things. Do you think that the NBA is going to change how they do it with, you know, 
instant replay of course is you know prevalent thing but like do you think we're going to get some more automation to make things more fair do you think that they're going to sort of use the technology that exists today to maybe add some transparency one and um some sort of automation to, <laughs> to, to refereeing to make it more balanced or do they just they want to have a hand in, in everything exactly you just answered it again they want to have a hand Sorry, in it. I talked about ultimately it. <laughs> ultimately they want to you know have the final say and control it so that you know the bottom line is anything uh you know in life it comes down to you know profitability and and making as much money as you can and that's why nail gambling uh is so important to the league because you know at some point you're going to see uh fans sitting in their seat and you're gonna have a little machine there where you can place your bet you know, sitting right there courtside using your credit card. So there's just so many different ways that, you know, they're going to benefit from the gambling and, and continuing to create. Does that make you upset? What's that? A little bit. Does that make you upset a little bit? Yeah, I was just about to ask that question. It does. You know, I feel like um, in a way, the whole scandal progressed the, the, the whole gambling movement and uh, in, in not just in the NBA, but, you know, making it legal throughout the United States. And uh, now it's, you know, just like it's really no big deal. So uh, yeah, it's tough, but you know what, what I did was wrong. And, uh, you know, I was the one that made the poor choices. And, you know, because of that, I kind of dug my own grave. So I've just been very fortunate that I've been able to, you know, dig myself out and uh, continue on. Final question for me. We're about to head into the playoffs. Who do you like? I think Phoenix, I like Phoenix to, uh, you know, get out of the West, which is going to be difficult. And, uh, you know, I also think that they're going to be able to beat Milwaukee. You also, you think it's going to be Milwaukee? Oh, Milwaukee. To ask. They, there's, okay. there's, you know, a lot I of, think, a lot of I hub for, think, for Joel Embiid and, and the Sixers right now. I think Kevin, uh, you know, Durant is just uh, the best player uh, in the world right now. And I think he's got maybe one or two years left. I think he's got, uh, you know, the situation and the surroundings of the people that he has on that team now where, it's a win now mode. And I think in a, in a seven game series, I think they'll be able to outlast Milwaukee uh, because I think that they're going to be able to put up, uh, you know, more points than they are. I'm going to be honest. Those are my exact picks as well. I'm picking the Suns to beat Milwaukee in the finals. Xandra, do you have yours? Do you know yet? I'm gonna I had be- to write something up. So that, that was my exact pick. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty much on board with you guys. Sorry, she's okay. like crying. So I'm trying to, I'm pretty much on board with you. Um, I don't want Phoenix to win, oh, I <laughs> but I think they will. Um, and it's Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's I, the best basketball player in the world right now. I completely agree with that. And that's why they're yeah. my pick. Thank you so much, Tim Donahue, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sandra, to my co-host. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Dishes and Times. Later, guys. Thanks for having me.